The Exchange Podcast. Catch the show live weeknights 8 to 10. Welcome back to CJAD. Dave Kaufman and Abby Goldberg here with you until 10 o'clock. It's a sad anniversary in, uh, in the world of sports. It's uh, the anniversary of one of the greatest speeches of all time uh, under one of the saddest of circumstances. And uh, we're about to play you a clip of, uh, it's not a complete clip, Abby. Abby, I don't know if you knew this, but the entire Lou Gehrig speech was not recorded. <laughs> so the luckiest man on the face of the earth <laughs> part is the tail end. <laughs> There's so much more to the speech. And we'll, uh, we'll play you something in the next segment with that. But we have a little piece of that right now, and we will play it for you right here on CJD. The news of Gehrig's illness stunned the country. And on July 4th, a huge, sad crowd packed Yankee Stadium to pay tribute to their beloved hero. Babe Ruth came back, and the two old teammates ended their long feud. Manager Joe McCarthy presented him with a trophy. At first, Gehrig was too moved to speak. For the past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad brag. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. That audio is from Ken Burns Baseball, a documentary that I uh, was so fond of growing up and that our next guest featured prominently in. John Thorne is the official historian of Major League Baseball. His most recent books are Baseball in the Garden of Eden, First Pitch, and Our Game, and he joins us now on CJD. Hello, John. Glad to be with you. Oh, it's a pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. Uh, my first question for you is, as I mentioned to my co-host, the speech was not recorded in its uh, in its entirety. Do you know why? Um, well, uh, games weren't recorded in their uh, weren't recorded in their entirety, either audio or video. So we are really dependent upon newsreel snippets and un- unidentified scissor wielders. Hmm. Uh, the, ver- the version of the Gehrig speech that comes down to us is the one that Gary Cooper recited in Pride of the Yankees. Oh, that's interesting. That's, uh, and, and of course, there's so many little subtexts to that film. Uh, I, I can think of the uniform, Gary Cooper's uniform in Cooperstown, with the logos reversed because he, was, uh, he hit from the other side of the plate than Gehrig, so they had to flip all of the filming, right? Uh, well, that's the legend that, the entire, that all Cooper's actions were filmed in reverse, which would have necessitated uh, flipping the ads on the uh, outfield walls and uh, endless stuff. But, but no, only a few action shots were flipped. Cooper was not a natural ball player, but he was a, a physical presence. I mean, he was, he was a, a former cowboy, so he knew, he, he knew his way around uh, a field and moving his body in synchronization, in synchronization with events. 
but he couldn't throw, and his uh, swing looked uh, not much better than William Bendix's in the Babe Ruth story. Oh, boy, okay, and that's a movie that the Babe walked out of. Uh, I, there's so many things that I'm fascinated by with Lou Gehrig, and I think one of them is the fact that he was this huge star, he was beloved, and played in the shadow of the Babe. Well, the shadow of the babe was precisely where uh, he uh, liked to be. He basked in the shadow. It was not a source of consternation or resentment for him in the least. The babe was a a creature of the press, and, and he loved it, and he was a quote machine. Uh, Garrig was a shy fellow, by, by no means uh, inarticulate, but he had, no, uh, he had no appetite for the public life. Interesting. He was, um, I know there, there are stories about his, uh, his parents who were German immigrants, and he was a, a product of New York City. He went to Columbia, right? That's right. And was a football star there, I believe. I know there were stories about uh, him suffering concussions, and there, they, there were uh, people positing that that may have led to him developing ALS down the road. But he was a New York City kid, and he got to star for the Yankees. That must have been a real thing at the time. Well, it was tremendous. Um, you know, Hank Greenberg was also a, a New York City uh, kid, but there was no place for him at first base because of Gehrig. Wow. So uh, he had to find his fortunes in Detroit. But, uh, you know, Gehrig uh, was identified as a tremendous talent even in high school, so that there was a New York City high school all-star squad that traveled to Chicago to play the best of the Chicago high schoolers at Wrigley Field, I believe it was, rather than Comiskey Park, and Gehrig blasted a home run then. Hmm. He, was, uh, he was a legend, and uh, his career should have lasted so much longer than it did, and of course, uh, he got the news that he was sick, and he traveled to the, uh, to the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and doctors tried to hide from him how bad it was, right? Yeah, he didn't know what he had when he went out to the Mayo Clinic. All he knew was that he had feelings of weakness and numbness, and that he could no longer do the job. He felt inklings of this uh, this weakness in the 1938 season, which was a steep decline from his norm. But when he went out to Minneapolis, I don't even think he knew what a myotrophic lateral sclerosis was. No, I think... Uh... Well, uh, and understandably so. It was not a very, I mean, it's still not a very common disease, but it was not a common at all when, when he got it. And that's why it's Lou Gehrig's disease right now. But that was, I guess, sometime between April and July because uh, he stopped playing at the end of April. And then July 4th was this tribute 75 years ago today at Yankee Stadium. Let's go back there, John, and, and talk about the, the moment. He uh, was supposed to speak at the start and then was too overcome emotionally to speak, correct? That's right, and we have uh, photos of him um, weeping with his hand to his eyes. It took him a while to compose himself. Now, this speech uh, appears to have been something that he wrote with his wife, maybe even the night before. Now, his wife, after he had returned from the Mayo Clinic, probably knew how dire the prognosis was, but Lou did not. He was under the impression that his bad break was that he could no longer play baseball and that he might have to have a limited uh, amount of physical activity going forward. But I don't think he knew that he had a death sentence. Do you think that people now realize the importance of him, that, that players in the game, I mean, I think back to 99 at the All-Star Game in Boston when, when all the players were surrounding Ted Williams and that wonderful moment. And crazy to think that Tony Gwynn's no longer with us because he's one of the ones sitting there with, lighting up with a smile ear to ear. Do you think that there's that same reverence for Garrick? 
Uh, not among today's players, and you, you can't expect that because uh, he died before any of them were born by, by quite a long shot. But I think that Gehrig's legacy lives on in that what we think of as the Yankee way. Yeah. A quiet dignity um, as carried forward best by Derek Jeter dates to Gehrig. Gehrig gave the style to DiMaggio. DiMaggio, like Gehrig, was shy, withdrawn, not inclined to uh, seek out the press. Now, you could say they were both introverts and that because of media PR, we translate their, uh, their weakness, their personal weakness, into quiet dignity in class. But I'll leave that for, for the psychologists. <laughs> Finishing up with MLB's official historian, John Thorne. You can also see him in the Ken Burns Baseball Series and read his books. Most recently, Baseball in the Garden of Eden, First Pitch, and Our Game. Is there a player, would you say Jeter is the guy that you would compare to Gehrig of the modern-day era? Uh, yes, certainly not in his on-field performance, no. but in the way he carries himself. I mean, if you look at Gehrig's on-field performance, his numbers, uh, they're unreal. And 117 RBIs in road games only in 1935, I think it was. Uh, that's in 77 home games. We've never seen anything like that. Um, so it's easy to, to think of Gehrig today as merely a medical case and a sad story, but he was... One of the three best hitters in the history of baseball. And that that's it. And and, and where does he get remembered on, on in the American consciousness? Is it it's for the speech, is it not? It's for the speech. It's for the movie, which is really pretty awful. Yeah. But it, it plucks the heartstrings, and that's what baseball movies do. And that's kind of what baseball does, isn't it? That's a very good point. That's outstanding. That's that's why I've always loved baseball. That's why I'm hoping we get a team back here one day, and that's why I still follow it as closely as I ever have. Uh, John Thorne, thank you so much for your time tonight. No, my pleasure entirely. Real pleasure to speak with you. All the best. There he goes. It's uh, John Thorne. You can follow him on Twitter at Thorne underscore John. Avi, uh, did you know much about Garrick's story? Well, as you were just concluding that, I was just thinking how sadly I fall into that category of, of somebody who basically thinks of that speech. I was just looking at the stats before the segment, and I, I have to admit that I'm not, I was not at all thinking about him in terms of his greatness as a ball player, and that, that is a shame. That's for sure a shame. Catch The Exchange live weeknights 8 to 10 on the radio on CJAD 800 and online at CJAD.com. Welcome back. It's the Kaufman Show on CJD. Dave Kaufman and Avi Goldberg here with you tonight. You can follow Avi on Twitter at Avi Goldberg. I'm at the Kaufman Show. We just spoke with John Thorne, the official historian for Major League Baseball, about the 75th anniversary of Lou Gehrig's iconic Luckiest Man on the Face of the Earth speech, where he uh, was feted after having to retire from baseball. And as uh, John alluded, not knowing how sick he was. We're now going to play you uh, a snippet from last night's Keith Olbermann show on ESPN. If you don't know Keith Olbermann, he's one of the finest journalists around. He's uh, a little bit on the left, maybe, for some of you, but that's why they moved him back to sports. And uh, wow, does he do sports the right way. Here is Olbermann from last night. We begin with just how young he was. If Lou Gehrig had somehow been swept up from his final day as the first baseman of the New York Yankees, April 30th, 1939, and found himself the first baseman of the New York Yankees this past Tuesday, July 1st, 2014, he would have been the fifth youngest player in the Yankee starting lineup. In the last game he played, he was still just 35. 
He was Chase Utley's age, Adrian Beltre's age. He was eight days older that day than Cliff Lee is now. Cliff Lee, who just found out that he can make an injury rehabilitation start Sunday and then rejoin the Phillies. By Lou Gehrig's 37th birthday, Carlos Beltran's age, he could not leave his house. By his 38th, how old David Ortiz is now, Lou Gehrig had been dead for more than two weeks. And 75 July 4ths ago, he had just turned 36. He did not want a Lou Gehrig day. He did not want to go on the field. He did not want to address the fans. He did not want to risk revealing by word or by his halting walk or by his already deteriorating physique or by dropping one of the trophies they would give him that what the doctors revealed or what he said they had revealed, that he had a 50-50 chance of surviving, that that was a humane inaccuracy. He did not want to say that he had a disease and they did not know what caused it and they had no way to treat it and there was no way to keep it from killing him and that within months to take a picture of him working at his desk they would have to force his hand closed around a pencil and that within months of that he would not be able to raise his own head. And so when on the 4th of July 1939 in front of 61,000 fans at Yankee Stadium the other speeches had all been made and the awards and gifts all handed out and the startled looks and gasps of all the players who saw just how thin and old he had already become had been muted and hidden and it came time for Lou Gehrig to go to the microphone to speak he did not move the crowd was then told he would not address them technicians advanced to the microphones to remove the microphones and then the Yankees manager Joe McCarthy put his arm on Lou Gehrig's back and leaned into him and said something we will never know what but instead of making his public goodbye his goodbye to those fans, to his teammates, to baseball, to his family, to life, to us who followed him. Instead of making his public goodbye a silent, stoic, noble nod, Lou Gehrig moved slowly to the microphone and gave one of the greatest speeches in history, a speech about the blessings of life. Not a speech about defiance in the face of death, not a speech about courage, not a speech about religion, not a speech about never giving up, Rather, a muted, heartbreaking speech, but still somehow unmistakably a speech of gratitude. Gratitude for life, gratitude for people. We have all heard him say it. Actually, we've all heard him say only four sentences of it. But it is worth hearing in its entirety, even if somebody like me has to read the parts not preserved on film. It has been compared in simplicity, in resonance, in beauty, to the Gettysburg Address, it is coincidental certainly, but in 1863, President Lincoln had spoken 272 words, more or less, and in 1939, Lou Gehrig would speak 276. The past two weeks, you've been reading about a bad break. Today, I consider myself the luckiest man on the face of the earth. I have been in ballparks for 17 years and have never received anything but kindness and encouragement from you fans. When you look around, wouldn't you consider it privilege to associate yourself with such a fine-looking man as a standing in uniform in this ballpark today? Sure, I'm lucky. Who wouldn't consider it an honor to have known Jacob Rupert? Also, the builder of baseball's greatest empire, Ed Barrow, to have spent six years with that wonderful little fellow, Miller Huggins, then to have spent the next nine years with that outstanding leader, that smart student of psychology, the best manager in baseball today, Joe McCarthy. Sure, 
I'm lucky. When the New York Giants, a team that would give you your, give your right arm to beat and vice versa, sends you a gift, that's something. When everybody down to the groundskeepers and those boys in white coats remember you with trophies, that's something. When you have a wonderful mother-in-law who takes sides with you in squabbles with her own daughter, that's something. When you have a father and mother who work all their lives so you can have an education and build your body, it's a blessing. When you have a wife who has been a tower of strength and shown more courage than you dreamed existed, that's the finest I know. So I close in saying that I might have been given a bad break, but I've got an awful lot to live for. Thank you. From a plaque at Yankee Stadium that says, To Lou Gehrig, We've been to the wars together, we took our foes as they came, and always you were the leader, and ever you played the game. Idol of cheering millions, records are yours by sheaves, iron of frame they hailed you, decked you with laurel leaves, but higher than that we hold you. We have known you the best, knowing the way you came through every human test. Let this be a silent token of lasting friendship's gleam, and all that we've left unspoken, your pals of the Yankee team. CJD time is 7.55. Catch The Exchange live weeknights 8 to 10 on the radio on CJAD 800 and online at CJAD.com.